read. Book of Titus. So how many of you enjoyed First and Second Timothy? I thought it was, yeah, it's good, good stuff, good pastoral letters, pastoral encouragement, very practical uh, help for the local church. Um, and so this is a, a very similar letter uh, that's written to Titus. And so Titus is another one of the Apostle Paul's son, sons in the faith. And so uh, Titus was left uh, by Paul uh, uh, on the island of Crete to strengthen the church that was there. And so this letter that was written, uh, it's believed that, uh, Paul, that Titus would have maybe sent a letter to Paul, which we don't have proof of that, but it's believed that he may have sent a letter to Paul uh, to give him an update of things that were going on at the church in Crete and that this is a response to that letter. And so this letter is believed to have been written between A.D. 62 and 64 while Paul was in Macedonia. And so this, this would have been written, to believe that uh, it would have been written um, around one of Paul's uh, missionary journeys, around the second or third journey. Now, now Titus, uh, theologians, scholars say uh, in studying history that Titus would have, it's believed he came to faith through Paul's ministry when Paul was on his first missionary journey. And so... Titus is a son in the faith. He came to faith through Paul's ministry. And so Paul obviously saw him grow in the faith, saw him mature in the faith, and thought he was equipped enough to leave him in, this, in, the, in the island, on the island of Crete and to strengthen the church that they worked together to, to, to plant. And if, if we look at Titus 1.5, it, it, it shows us that. Uh, this is, we're going to get to this next week, but... This is what Paul says to Titus in his letter. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul left Titus there. I just, I just think that's an interesting thing. You know, you're on a journey with your mentor, your father in the faith, and you plant a church, you work together with him, and he's like, hey, buddy, I'm leaving, but you got to stay. I wonder how that worked out. I wonder what, how that uh, if uh, you know, it's just all speculation here, but I wonder if if it took some convincing uh, from Paul to Titus to get him to stay. But either way, T- Titus stayed, and so this is a letter of encouragement to Titus. And so, and it's very similar. It, it's a letter of encouragement to another young pastor, just like Timothy was a young pastor. And so, Titus would have dealt with similar things that Timothy would have dealt with. Dealing with false teachers, dealing with persecution, just dealing with intimidation, with fear. And so this is just an encouragement from his father in the faith to hang in there, to persevere, to deal with false teachers, to, to do a good work for the gospel where he's been left and where he's been planted. And so there's several themes that you can probably pull out of here um, and really, you know, we can kind of say that that will cover different themes, but there's really only one main theme that we're going to see. And I kind of want to set the stage here for giving us all a lens with which to see our study through Titus. And this is the lens that we're going to look through. This is the one major theme. It's the theme of evangelism. It's the theme of evangelism and effective evangelism in the life of a Christian and in the life of the local church. What does it take for us as a church, what does it take for you to be an effective evangelist? How can the church be effective in their witness? And so looking through that lens, that's what we're, that's what we're going to do throughout our, our, our whole study. So as I, as I teach lessons, um, I don't, of course, Pastor Renee, I think possibly is watching this live right now. Do y- y- want to say hi to Pastor Renee? We're, we're testing our live stream. I think there's a 30 second delay to that. So I don't know if he's going to, teach through this lens or not <laughs> whenever it's his turn but uh when I, but but i just think it's a great lens for us to see through see that through whenever paul gives titus admonitions about how believers should live when you see it through the lens of evangelism you see that if we're going to be effective evangel evangelists that bond servants should be good bond servants and obey their masters and have a good reputation in, in the community. And that's what we're going to cover as we go through Titus. And so when you see it through the lens of evangelism, you realize that it, our witness is important 
where we work in our everyday life and how we respond to our boss. So that's kind of the path that we're going to take. But we're, we're not going to really dive into any of the nuts and bolts of Titus yet. We're just going to look at the introduction, first four verses. And this, in, this introduction is, is one of Paul's longest introductions that he's given in any of his letters. And it's a really neat introduction. So really what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the Apostle Paul. Because he gives some details about his life. And so what I want to look at, and we, we will look at it as some more as we go through Titus, this theme. But I want to look at what's the heart of a godly leader? What is the heart of a godly leader? And we, we've dealt with some of these, uh, the, this theme in first and second, uh, first and second Timothy. But I just think there's a unique angle here as we look at the apostle Paul's life. He speaks about himself. In these first four verses. And I believe there's some really neat nuggets here. That kind of give us a picture of who the Apostle Paul is. And what made him such a powerful leader. And all of us are are leaders. Do you guys know that? You're a leader whether you want to be or not. There's somebody watching you. Somebody is looking at your life. You may think nobody's watching you. But somebody's watching you. I remember remember whenever uh, I approached my wife. To first. Uh, well, she wasn't my wife, approached Estelle before she was my wife to let her know I wanted to get to, to know her. And I started with the statement. I said, I'd like, you know, I'd like to talk to you after church. And so we meet after church. And, I, and the first words out of my mouth, Estelle's my witness. I've been watching you. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That is so creepy. Like, that is like, that's like stalker right there i've been watching you and uh, i was watching her somebody's watching you and so I, I i just i just wanted her to know that i've been watching her and how amazing that she is you know she's a beautiful woman and i've been seeing her, her leadership and all that but what was interesting is that that that's kind of what i'm talking about here tonight somebody's watching your leadership somebody's watching who you are. And so you may not think you're a great leader. You may not think that you can influence people, but you do. And so we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul's life and what set him apart to be a great leader. And I just want to encourage you in the, the, the influence that you have, in the realm of influence that, that God's given you, that these are qualities that we all have to have. Uh, but even more specifically, if you have a, a desire to be influential in the kingdom of God as a leader in God's kingdom... These attributes that the Apostle Paul talks about here are so critical. And so let, let's look at the text. Let's look at the introduction of the letter to Titus. Titus 1, 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. So this is his introduction. So what I want to see is what we're going to see here is that there's four things that jump out to me as I was studying this introduction that demonstrate the heart of Paul. Show us who he is. And so. We're going to answer the question, what does a heart of a godly leader look like? And so the the first thing that jumped out to me is that Paul had a heart of humility. Paul had a heart of humility. So let's look at verse one. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ. What did Paul declare that he was? A servant, a servant. Now, Paul had authority. And he could have wielded that authority and been forceful in that authority. But how did Paul communicate himself even to Titus in this letter, even to the church that, 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 that may have read portions of this letter? He, can, he, he saw himself and presented himself as a servant. And that word servant isn't what we would think of a typical servant. When you think of a servant, what would you think of? Think of somebody who, you know, you know, is, is, a, is, is a servant, <laughs> somebody who, who, who serves, somebody who, who goes above and beyond and, 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 and helps people out. Well, that word servant that we would typically use is not the word 
for servant that's used here. The original language of this book would have been written in Greek. And so when you study that word servant out, it ha- it's the, the Greek word doulos. Doulos. And this is the meaning of that word servant. Literally, a slave. Literal or, or figurative. Involuntary or voluntary. Frequently, therefore, in a qualified sense of subjection uh, or subserviency. A servant, a slave. The word doulos, that word servant, when it's used throughout the, the New Testament, most of the time, it's, this word servant is used as the word slave. And so the word that, that the Apostle Paul used to describe himself, he describes himself as the lowest on the totem pole in his culture. He describes himself as a slave. As somebody that was on the bottom of the rung, the bottom of the barrel. Do you remember in Paul's, in, in Paul's writings, he called himself the chief of sinners? Oh, and, and he talked about how he was a wretched man. Well, this is how Paul viewed himself. He, he didn't view himself as high and mighty, as somebody that, that was to be served. He viewed himself as a slave. As somebody that was there, that it was only by God's grace that he was being used. And so he had a heart of humility, a heart of humility. Paul described himself as the lowest on, on, on the social status rung of his time. He was describing himself as being under the ownership of somebody. If you're a slave, you're under the ownership of someone. He was describing himself as being under the ownership of Christ. And in another one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this. Says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, who you, who you have from God? You are not your own. If you're not your own, what does that mean? Belong to somebody else. You're not your own. You are not. You're not your own. My kids, they're not their own. They belong to me. <laughs> they're my children. They don't belong to you, and you probably wouldn't want them most of the time. I claim them. For you were bought. With a price, I am redeemed. <laughs> I can't say, oh, Lord, help us all. <laughs> that's what that means. For you were, that's what, that's the verse of this song that we just sung. For you are bought with a price. And so because you were bought with a price, glorify God in your body. You've been redeemed and bought back from slavery to sin. So now, how do we consider ourselves now? We consider ourselves not slaves to sin, but slaves to God. Slaves to Christ. We are under his, his ownership. We go from being under the ownership of someone else, sin and the devil and our flesh, and now we are under the ownership of a new master, under grace given by Christ. We are slaves to Christ. And this, ha- this is how the Apostle Paul viewed himself. He had a humble heart that was not filled with pride. And humility is the key to all great leadership. If, if you're going to be a great leader in your family, amongst your friends, on your job, if you're going to lead in any form or fashion, and as I said, we're all leaders, you have to lead with humility. You can't see yourself as deserving anybody's respect. I, de- I deserve that. They need to give me that respect. It's what I, it's what I deserve. Man, that, that is a curse on our country right now. We need more people that think like the Apostle Paul, that lead like that. That lead from a position of humility. As believers, we do not belong to ourselves. We are not the masters of our own ship. You guys ever ever heard that phrase? I'm the master of my own ship. The master of my destiny. You guys ever seen that bumper sticker? Jesus is my is my co-pilot. What in the world? My co-pilot. Is that you? Do somebody, do you would somebody really believe that's true? That I'm driving the car and Jesus is riding shotgun? <laughs> like, come on. Is that how you, is that the life you want to live? Like, I would rather any day, every day, all the time, Jesus has the wheel. I mean, Carrie Underwood got it right. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> right? I mean, Carrie Underwood didn't get too much right, but she got that one right. I didn't plan on talking about Carrie Underwood tonight. Or those songs. But hey, I, I like the song actually. I got a little country love in my heart. I'm a closet country lover. I, not really. We belong to God. Let's, let's look at what Romans 6, 15 through 18 says. 
It says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And who do we obey? We, we obey Christ. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, all of us, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's the picture of the new nature. You used to be slaves to your old nature, to follow the dictates of your flesh, wherever your flesh led you in the desires that you had, led by the the sinful desires motivated by Satan and his demons, and you were slave, enslaved to that. You felt like, how can I stop? I can't stop. I can't stop these thoughts in my mind. I can't stop myself from going that direction, the way of this world. And sometimes you felt like you were entrapped and you were in bondage and you didn't realize that you, that you were. And it took somebody to preach the gospel to show you that you really were enslaved to sin. And then when you became a Christian and you saw what Jesus did on your behalf and you surrendered, the chains fell off. And then you inherited some more chains. But now those chains are actually liberation. It produced freedom in your life. And now and now when you have those sinful thoughts that you used to have, the Holy Spirit is in your heart now. It lives on the inside of you. And now whenever you start to go in the direction that you know you should not go in, the Holy Spirit convicts your heart. And there's a new nature that dwells on the inside of you. You're slaves to righteousness now, to follow, to follow the dictates of your heart and your new nature, to honor Christ. Humility. The first qualification for leadership is humility. So if we were to ask, if we were to ask anybody what the first qualification for leadership would be in our culture, what do you think some people would say in American culture? Money, power. Ability to communicate. You've got to be able to work a crowd. You've got to be able to influence and control. You've you got to be demonstrative and powerful. The first qualification for leadership in God's kingdom is humility. And actually, non-believers in the secular world, if they get a hold of this, they, they become powerful leaders. When they can learn to lead with humility and not an iron fist. You do what I say because I'm your boss. Well, yeah, if you work somebody, you know you're their boss. You don't have to tell them that. If you lead from a position of humility and servanthood, people will follow you. The first qualification for for leadership is humility. And the reason why pride has no place in the believer's life is because of who we know we used to be. Because we know that we used to be enslaved to sin and could not save ourselves, and it was only by the grace of God that he unlocked those chains and we're free, there is no place for pride. In the Christian's life. I just want in closing with this first point. I just want to read a couple of portions of scripture. About the greatest demonstration of humility that we have. And his name is Jesus. This is Luke 22. 24 through 27. It says a dispute arose among the disciples. As to who. As to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. So this, this scene here that we're going to read, this is the scene in the upper room, the Last Supper. And so this is right before Jesus breaks the bread and begins to interact with his disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He said to them, so they're arguing amongst themselves, who's going who's to be the greatest in this kingdom of Jesus that he's about to establish on earth? And he said to them, Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. And some translations say it should not be so among you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And in their culture, it was the one who reclined at table was the greatest. Because he was the one that was being served. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you. As the one who serves. And they viewed him as the greatest. Because he did all these miracles. This is at the end of Jesus' life. So they're thinking back to all the miracles that Jesus 
that Jesus did and the feeding of the multitudes and, and, the, and the blind eyes that were opened and the healings that took place and the words that he spoke with. And they're thinking this is a one powerful leader. And we need to try to position ourselves to be with him and, and kind of rub elbows with him so we can have a great position with him. Look what Jesus says. This is the same scene, but in the book of John, it doesn't, it doesn't have this picture of the argument. But this is the same scene in the upper room, John 13. This is what happened after this discussion amongst themselves. They rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Simon Peter said. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, and Peter, but, but afterward you will. Verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That's below you, Jesus. That's what slaves do. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Let's think about this for a second. You know what he's saying right there? Peter's still thinking about the argument he was having with his buddies about where he's going to be in position in Jesus' kingdom. And so Jesus starts washing his feet. And so Peter says, oh, Jesus, you cannot wash my feet because that's what slaves do. You are greater than those slaves. You are the greatest leader that has ever lived. You can't wash feet. And then Jesus shocks him and says, if you want a part of me, you have to let me wash you. So Peter's motivation here is, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I want a part of this kingdom. He still didn't get it. His motivation was to be high and mighty and rub elbows with the greatest leader he had ever seen. And Jesus is diminished. I just, I just, every time I read this, it really just humbles my heart to see the greatest leader that has ever lived and will ever live, the son of the living God, who could have made everyone bow down to his leadership, demonstrated visibly to these men what it meant to be great. He told them what it meant to be great, and then he showed them what it meant to be great. Humility is the first qualification for leadership. Amen? Second qualification that we see, second heart attribute, of the Apostle Paul that we see. And this is such a good one here. I just love this. Kind of, it really does flow from the first one. Let's go back to verse 1. So the first description that Apostle Paul said of himself was that he was a servant of Christ. Servant of God. And then he says this. And an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle, again, he describes himself as a servant. And now as an apostle. That word apostle uh, in the Greek is pronounced a apostolos and this is what it means a delegate especially an ambassador of the gospel officially a commissioner of christ apostle messenger he that is sent he that is sent so an apostle again in our church culture an apostle is almost looked at as like he's like the head dog right an apostle over churches. He's like the head honcho. And it's kind of looked at as somebody that is in control or authority. And that's not even what the word apostle means. It actually means a sent out one. Somebody who is sent out as a representative. Like, like you would be a representative of the nation of America. And you would represent our country and other countries. You would be, what's the word? It's slipping my mind. I'm trying to think of it as a, an ambassador. I think that's what it says right there. An ambassador. That's, that's what an apostle is. They're an ambassador. They are a sent one. So the second attribute, second heart quality I see in the apostle Paul is he had a heart of willingness. He had a heart of, of willingness. He had a humble heart, heart of humility. And because of that heart of humility, he said, Lord, do whatever you want. I am your apostle. I am your messenger. I am your sent one. Send me wherever you want me to go. If we're going to be great leaders, if you're going to be great leaders, you have to have a willing heart. You have to say, Lord, no matter what it costs, no matter how difficult, no, no matter what people are going to think of me, 
No matter what my family thinks, my boss thinks, my, my co-workers think, God, send me into your harvest field to preach the gospel to those that need to hear the message. God, I am your apostle, your sent one. I am willing to go. Who does that remind you of in the Old Testament? Don't all shout, don't, don't all shout me down. Say it. What's that, babe? Isaiah. Isaiah. It's a great example of a willing heart to be sent. Let's look at Isaiah 6, 8 through 9. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. And verse 9 says, And the, the Lord said, Go and say to this people, speaking to the nation of Israel, You know, when you're sent, you're called to say something. When you're sent, you're called to speak. God's not going to send you somewhere to just be cute and nice. You can be cute and nice and loving, but the gospel must be proclaimed. It's got to be spoken. God's spoken to us through words. And so when we preach the gospel, we preach it in deed and in word. See, what happens is when, when we get them both mixed up, sometimes we preach in word and we live like the devil and then people don't believe our message. So it's deed and it's through word. God sends us to speak. And why, why is it that Isaiah was motivated to, to say, here I am, send me? What took place in Isaiah's life? We didn't read these, the verses before that. But what took place to him? He saw the glory of God. Earlier in Isaiah 6, it says, it says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what happened is, is that when he saw the Lord in his perfect holiness, what took place to Isaiah? What took place in his heart? He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am unclean. I have unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And it says that the Lord took a coal off of the fire and he touched Isaiah's lips and he purified him and cleansed him. So I just want to encourage you that a vision of the Lord, where you see the Lord, you see him in his beauty and his holiness and his majesty. The, the, <coughs> the natural response to your heart is say, Lord, here I am, send me. I see who you are. I see your goodness. I see your mercy. I see your holiness. And God, I'm willing to go wherever you send me because of who you are. A humbled heart. And that's what happened to Isaiah. His heart was humbled. He said, woe is me. A humbled heart willingly submits to God's will. A humbled heart willingly submits to God's will. Let's, let's look at Jesus again. Is there anybody greater to look at than Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of a willing heart. Jesus left the upper room and he gets betrayed by Judas in the in the garden. But before that, he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And then we see that in Luke 22, 40 through 43. It says, and when he came to, to, to that place, to the place, he said to them, to his disciples, pray that me, you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And knelt down and prayed. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this cup of suffering that I'm about to experience. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Ultimate demonstration of willingness to go where no one has ever gone. Jesus experienced suffering that none of us will ever have to experience. Because he experienced it for us. He took our place. And so he was willing to endure the most excruciating pain. He knew what was coming. He knew the ridicule and the mockery and the pain, the physical pain that it was going to be inflicted on his body. And his, his humanity was wanting to quit. And that was a demonstration of his humanity speaking up there. Lord, if it is father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But his humanity spoke up at the same time and said, nevertheless, 
even though I know what I'm about to experience, not my will, but what you want, what you desire. And that is the heart of every great leader that is ever impactful in the kingdom of God is a willingness to say, God, no matter what it costs me, no matter what I go through, no matter the rejection, the ridicule, the pain, the being spit on, laughed at, mocked at, God, I am willing to go because of what you did. Because of what you sacrificed on my behalf, I'm willing to go to be used. How many of you desire to be used by God? You got to see the Lord. And that vision of the Lord humbles your heart. And you have a contrite heart. And out of that humility, you say, God, I don't know what your will looks like. I don't know all the nuts and bolts and where things are going to go and what my life's going to look like. But God, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to obey you. I'm willing to take the step of faith. Some of you need to hear that, hear that tonight. You need to say, God, I am willing to take that step of faith to trust you. I don't, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what it's going to look like next month, next, next year, the years down the road. But God, I know you're a good God. I've seen you in your holiness and your grace and your might and your power. And I am willing to trust you. I'm willing to lay aside my fears. So many times we can be so fearful, full of fear, and we feel paralyzed to make a decision to trust God, to step out in faith. Some of you, you can feel so paralyzed when you're on your job and God's given you a desire to witness and to share the gospel. And you so you feel so paralyzed with fear. But when you see the Lord. When you see the Lord, the fear goes, your heart is humbled and you say, God, I'm willing I'm willing, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to obey because you are worthy of trust. You're a God, as we read earlier, that never lies. Wherever, whenever, however you want to use me, Lord, I am willing. So a great leader, the heart of a great leader is humble and is willing. And thirdly, let's look back at the text. Verses one through three, let's let's read those. Again, it says, Paul, a servant, a humble servant of God and a sent one of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I just want to key on this is totally not a part of the message. I just want to want you to see something here for the sake of the what's that next word? Say it loud. Faith. What's the next phrase? God's elect. What does that mean, God's elect? God's chosen ones. So, but you got two powerful truths right here that are true at the same time. God calls and chooses, but we must come by faith. It's not either or, it's both and. God calls with the message of the gospel. And we're not robots where God just says, I'm going to make you be saved and make you be saved and make you be saved against your will. No, it's by faith. Faith of God's elect. Just a little bonus there for you. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So how is the Apostle Paul describing himself here? He's describing himself here as a preacher. He's been given God's word. He's been entrusted God's word and been given a job to preach God's word. So the third attribute of a godly leader, the heart of a godly leader, is that they have a heart for the gospel, a heart For the gospel, Paul demonstrated a love for the gospel and a desire to preach it boldly. Let's look at some of Paul's other two other letters that he wrote and look at the the passion and the heart he had to preach the gospel in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Paul's teaching us how to pray. And in those previous chapters, he's talking about spiritual warfare and how we should pray. Keep alert with all perseverance, making prayer, supplication for all the saints. And Paul says, I want you to pray for me. Church at Ephesus here, I want you to pray for me. That words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an apostle, an ambassador 
in chains. Isn't that so good? In chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. How do we preach the gospel? Man, we don't hide. We don't hide. But we don't. Oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I don't want to offend you. I, I, I really, I really don't want to offend you. But I just, I want you to know about Jesus. But I, I know you may not agree. I know it may not be something that you really want to hear. But I, I just, would you please listen to me just for a few minutes, <laughs> please? I'm begging you. No. You don't have to be offensive on the other end. But j- just speak confidently. Speak boldly. Preach the gospel boldly with confidence. And the gospel, trust me, will do the offense. <laughs> It'll do the offending. That's what Scripture says about the gospel. It is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. It is offensive. Because, why is the gospel offensive to those who aren't saved? Because it tells them that they're dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says you're dead. You want any, you, you ever, when you were not saved, would you have enjoyed somebody coming up to you and telling you, hey, I just want you to know that you're dead in your trespasses and sins? Who are you? To tell me something like that. You, you could have said it and given them brownies. <laughs> and they still would have got offended. They would have eaten your brownies and left mad. Because it's the message that offends. But salvation comes through offense. I want you guys to get that. If you've heard me preach any bit of time at Living Word Church, you know I've talked about this. Offense leads to salvation. That's how people get saved. If people don't get offended first... They typically don't really get saved because you have to get offended at the fact that you are wretched and you have to come to terms that you are wretched and sinful. And that is offensive to sinful humanity. And when they are when they come to grips with that, that's what leads them to recognize that there is only one solution. That's Jesus Christ. So we just have to preach it boldly and confidently and let the word do the rest. And sometimes when you're preaching boldly to a loved one or to a coworker or somebody that you know that needs Jesus, you may, they, they may get mad at you, get mad at the message. But just give it some time. God's word is, is, is like a seed. And it goes down into that heart. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And what does that mean? Convict the world of their condition of sin. Show them the only righteous one and show them that judgment is coming if they don't repent. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that Holy, the Holy Spirit's going to work on their heart. So you just trust God with the work of salvation in their heart. Preach it in love and let the word of God offend their heart so they can come to salvation. Colossians 4, the Apostle Paul says in verses 2 through 4. He's speaking to the church at Colossae and he's asking them to pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner. He's in chains. He's slave. He's he's a slave to Christ that I may speak it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That is so good. Speak it clear, which is how I am, how I ought to speak. So why was the Apostle Paul so bold in his preaching of the gospel? What was his motivation? Why was he so bold? Was he just specially blessed by God to be bold? Why was he so bold? Talk, talk to me. Why do y'all think? Say it again. Absolutely. He was trusting the Lord that God would give him the words to say and to be bold, give him that confidence. I think that that, that's a part of it. Yes. Anybody else? He saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. That's a very, I actually, that wasn't in my thinking as to what my answer is, but that's a part of it. Yeah, like Isaiah. He saw the Lord. He was on the road to Damascus to go kill Christians, to bring authority to go and kill other persecute and kill Christians. And he saw the Lord and he fell off his donkey. And so that's that that his encounter with the Lord and his salvation. Was the motivation that he needed to be bold. He was radically saved. He was going one direction with his life, opposing the gospel, and he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in a very offensive way. And you think it was kind of offensive. The Lord knocked him off his donkey, blinded him. 
and has to go and get prayed for and have the scales fall off his eyes. And all of a sudden, he was he immediately became a witness for Christ and a proclaimer of the gospel. Actually, actually, it says it says that where, wherever he went right after that, that the, 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 the Jews in the region were kind of nervous because they're like, wait, I'm not sure if we should let this guy in to come and talk to us. Because isn't he Saul of Tarsus that was killing Christians? And people had to speak words of comfort to them to, to let them know that Paul, that Saul was a changed man. But he was bold because he had been changed. So that's the motivation of our boldness is that, hey, if we've been radically changed and God did a radical work in, in, in our life, we have no reason to be timid. We have no reason to be intimidated because it's because the gospel is true. The gospel is powerful. It's the power of God unto salvation. So, so we can with love confidently boldly declare the gospel of jesus christ so we but but we do it with a heart of humility a heart of willingness and we are passionate for the gospel that's that's a heart of a godly leader and 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 lastly what does what does what do we see in the apostle paul this is a really neat picture here let's go back to the text verse four he says to titus my true true child in a common faith Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior to Titus. I'm going to key in on that phrase, my true child. And I, the fourth thing I see in his heart is that he has a heart for discipleship. A heart for discipleship. And I believe that all godly leaders have a heart to disciple others. They have been humbled by God. They are willing to be sent by God. And they have a love and a passion for the gospel to preach it to others. And they want to see other people mature in Christ and come to be, a, to, to be a disciple and to be discipled and trained. And I love that language that you see the, the Apostle Paul speak of with, with Titus. And he spoke of it with Timothy. He calls them the, his, his children, his son in the faith, my true child in the faith. He has a love for others. Leaders have a love for others to call them up, to see them matured in the faith, to grow in the faith. It is abnormal for us as Christians to not want to see others be discipled in the faith. God's placed that in our hearts. Discipleship is the fundamental commandment given to us by Jesus. This is what he says in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we make disciples by preaching the gospel. So people become a disciple of Jesus by hearing the truth of the gospel. They come to faith in Jesus. And then and then we become those that they look at. And imitate and follow. And we disciple them by through, through scripture with our life. So when you would think of a disciple, you think of imitating and following somebody. That's what I'm doing with my kids. I'm hoping that by what they see in my life, that they learn to imitate the good things that I do. If you had your kids imitate the bad things that you do? Anybody want to talk about it? <laughs> Probably not. We don't want to talk about the bad things that our kids imitate us doing uh i mean i, I i've heard i've seen uh, kids little kids say curse words and and my kids have heard it and they would ask me daddy why do you think they said that why are they saying that i said well they heard it somewhere they heard it from somebody could have been a, a friend could have been a parent but that child is a disciple of somebody in their life and so as christians who are disciples of christ we're following christ god calls along side of us other people that will that will follow our example as we follow the example of christ that's what the apostle paul said he said that in first corinthians 11 1 be imitators of me as i am of christ other translations say follow me as i follow christ I, isn't that such a bold statement can you imagine walking up to, to somebody and say hey you need to follow me you need to follow me why? Because I'm following Christ. And there's fruit in my life that demonstrates that I am a, a believer and I'm growing in Christ and I'm further along the road than you are and you need to follow 
my example. You see how I treat my wife? You need to watch that. See how I raise my kids? You need to follow that example. Did you see how when things get frustrating, my tongue doesn't slip with negative words? Follow my example. I'm following Christ. And the reason why anybody can can live in, in any way that honors God is because they're following Christ's example. It's just this chain reaction. As we follow Christ, God calls others to follow us as we follow Christ. It's called discipleship. It's called training up people in righteousness. Paul talks about this further in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see that language again? Paul viewed the people that he was ministering to as children in the faith, beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Man, that is such a need in the body of Christ for for spiritually mature men and women to rise up and to look at those in the congregation that are younger in the faith and say, follow me. Look at my example. I want to help you. I want to teach you. As beloved children, I want you to come into my life. Come and live around me. Come. I want to take you to get coffee. I want you to come and eat at my house. You know, discipleship takes time. Discipleship doesn't happen over the phone and through a text. Discipleship takes, takes you rubbing elbows with somebody that's new in the faith. And take time to be with them so they can be around you. I can't tell you the amount of young adults in our house. We have had young adults in our house for over six years in our living room. And I never wanted to have the young adult gathering in the fellowship hall here or, or somewhere else in this building because it was cold. And, and, and formal. I wanted them in my house every Friday. Every Friday. Because I wanted them to be with me. To see how I treated my wife. I wanted them to rub elbows with me. Be around me. Know me. Get to know me. And so when you talk to those young adults that I've been around for these six years. You, they know me. They know my heart. They know what I'm passionate about. Because they've been around me. And I have discipled them in their life. That's what discipleship is. If you don't want to be inconvenienced. Don't be a discipler. You get inconvenienced. But great leaders are disciplers. Because they have a heart for discipleship. Because they have been discipled. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. And this is so good. I love it. God's word is so powerful. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Follow me. Do what I do. Be a disciple. Follow my example and be my disciple, but disciple others. Be fathers to others. This is what I sent. This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Oh, man. I'm just getting so out. I'm telling you guys, bear with me. I'm just, that is so good. Lord, help us. Help us to do this. It is so good. Oh, man. Just think about that. Listen to what Paul's saying. He, he spent time at the church in Corinth. And they saw his ways. And Paul's telling them, this is why I sent you Timothy. So he can remind you of how I lived. Remind you of my ways. In Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church. Amen. It is so good. So what is a disciple? Disciple of Jesus is a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. A worshiper of Christ because of what he's done in their heart. A servant. They have a humble heart and they're a witness. To make disciples, we we must first be a disciple. And I've I've got a quote from a desiringgod.org article. It says, to be a disciple of Jesus means to point people to him. It means to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love so that others would know him and worship him. It means, in other words, that we gladly seek more worshipers, servants, and missionaries. (laughs) Oh, hallelujah. Which is to say, a disciple of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus. As Jesus tells us to in Matthew 28. And of course. When Jesus speaks. We listen. 
Amen. So one of my one of my passions to see in Living Word Church is that we would be a church of disciplers. That we don't come to church for us. We are enraptured with the beauty of Christ. And we come to worship him, to serve him, to witness for him. And we come to gather amongst the saints to be a discipler for somebody else. So that we can create and influence more worshipers, servants, and missionaries. That would go out and leave these doors and spread this message all around our community. All around this region. So that we can create and influence more disciplers of Jesus who will influence more worshipers and servants and missionaries. Amen? So a godly leader, the heart of a godly leader is humble. And they're willing. They're humble and they're willing. And they have a a servant's heart. And they love to serve and to be used by God. And they are, they are, uh, and they have a heart for the gospel. And because they have a heart for the gospel, they have a heart for discipleship. Amen. God, I thank you for your word. God, may we all be, may we all be like that. Lord, let that be our heart. Let that be my heart, Lord, that I would walk in humility. And I would be willing to do whatever you want me to do. And that I would champion the gospel. That in my championing of the gospel, Lord, that I would make disciples of all those that you've placed in my path. And that those disciples would make other disciples who would make other disciples and that your kingdom would continue to spread everywhere, God. Because we know that this gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. And we know that there are lost people out there all, all around us who have no hope, who are not redeemed, who live under slavery to sin, and they need to hear your message. Lord, may that be true of our hearts. We, su- we submit all of these things to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.